931 BC rather, the kingdom split into two. We had the northern kingdom that retained the name Israel and the southern kingdom that assumed the new name Judah, so named after the dominating um, Judah, the tribe of Judah that dominated the kingdom. So Amos, being from Judah and sent to Israel, saved somewhat comparably to Jonah, considering that he was, a cross, he was called to a cross-cultural engagement that would actually include both religious and dialectic shifts. So that's the prophet of the book, but when was Amos written? Well, according to verse 1, Amos spoke concerning Israel during the reign of Isaiah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, king of Israel, both of which were 8th century kings. You shouldn't confuse this Jeroboam with Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, um, who reigned around in, in the 10th century. Uh, this Jeroboam reigned in the 8th century around 796 to 752 BC. And in the southern kingdom, the king was Uzziah, um, who reigned about from 792 to 740 or 739 BC. If you read Chronicles chapter, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 15, verse 1 to 7, you actually come across another king by the name of Azariah, who is said to have reigned the same period of time. And that shouldn't confuse you, because Uzziah and Azariah are the same person, the successor of Amaziah. However, there is a significant detail that does not only help us narrow down to the, a reasonable date for the book, but also emphasizes the historical reliability of the book and its message. The last part of the verse, the prophecy came two years before the earthquake. A detail that is also mentioned by Zechariah, a 6th century prophet who reflected to this event um, during his ministry. In reference to the coming day of the Lord, Zechariah chapter 14 verse 5 says, And you shall flee to the valley of mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach us all, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. While scholars date the earthquake this prophet spoke about around 760 BC, and using that, if, I, if uh, Amos got his message two years before the earthquake, then that puts us somewhere around nine, uh, 762 BC. So what is going on in Israel in the 8th century? Well, briefly, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 to chapter 15, verse 7, gives us some detail as of the outlook of Israel in the 8th century during the reign of Jeroboam II. At the beginning of the 8th century, the king of Assyria defeated Aram, Damascus, which in turn freed Israel from Aramean oppression. As a result, Israel experienced both political stability and economic security, reminiscent of the reign of David and Solomon. However, spiritually, the writer of Kings says Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. His reign was marked with rampant corruption and moral decay, for their economic success brought about social injustice and all kinds of immorality, which then Amos addresses. And that's bring, that brings us to the message of the book. 
In the midst of all this political stability and economic success, Amos comes in addressing the injustice that was going on, not only in Israel, the beneficiary of the success, but also in the nations that surrounded it. While the other nations were indicted of deeds committed during the times of war, Israel is regarded guilty of covenant violation, both against God and against justice, of which, for the most part, it had to do with the abuse of the poor by the rich. Unlike the other nations, Israel had a moral compass. They were given the law. They were supposed, that was supposed to govern their conduct. But they did not act according to the law. For this reason, God declares that they should prepare to meet their God. For Israel had been unrepentant and judgment was at hand. So, the outline of the book, I brought together two outlines from Mark F. Rooker, uh, who is an Old Testament survey. Um, researcher and my professor, Dr. Derucci, they have two different perspectives and two different approaches to the book uh, that I found both to be helpful in, in, in studying the book of Emmas. So we're going to look at eight oracles, and the eight oracles will establish the indictments against Israel and the nations. Then we're going to look at the five prophecies that will establish the case against Israel. And we're going to also see the five visions that will establish the sentence against Israel. And in, in conclusion, the epilogue, the ultimate perspective of Israel. So let's go on ahead and jump in. Um, eight oracles, indictments against Israel and the nations. As we will see, Amos' Emma's rhetoric is very pointed and crafty. He knows that his target is Israel, but just like a hawk circles around its prey, he starts off in the outskirts. He starts off with Damascus, then he moves down to Gaza, then he goes to Tyre, then he moves to distant cousins, Edom, Ammon, and Moab, then he comes down south to the brother Judah, and then in a climactic slot, number eight, Unexpectedly, he drops the bomb on Israel, the northern kingdom. The progression of the oracle is obvious as you read the book because we see a similar numerical motive for three, for three transgressions and for four being repeated over and over again. And this accompanied by that says the Lord acts as transition from one oracle to the next we can't say with certainty whether this rhetorical device is supposed to be taken literally with its final number echoing the elements that the author cites just like it was used in the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, verse 16 to 19, or if it should be taken generally to refer to an indefinite number. But considering our study right now, I'm leaning towards looking, taking looking at this rhetorical device as in an indefinite number because there is a variation in the number of accusations Amos cites against each nation. So just to quickly go through the first six nations, read with me verses 2 to 5. And this is going to be the only oracle for the nations that I'll read because all the other oracles, they're structured the same way. Verse 2, And he said, 
The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Como withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel, and it shall devour the strongholds of ben I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from their valley of heaven. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to care, says the Lord. So you can see that the oracle, the first oracle against Damascus in verses 3 to 5, Damascus is accused of war crimes. They thresh Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. The second oracle against Gaza in verses 6 to 8, they are accused of war crimes again, and for them they took into Israel a whole people, into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. The third oracle against Tyre, verses 9 to 10, they are accused of war crimes again. But for Tyre it is a little bit worse because in delivering up a whole people to Edom, they betrayed a covenant of brotherhood. In the fourth oracle against Edom, the cousin, verses 11 to 12, they are accused of war crimes again, but again a little worse than Tyre because in anger, Edom mercilessly pursued his own brother and kept his wrath forever. In the fifth oracle against the Ammonites in verses 13 to 15, they are accused of war crimes again, which includes inhumane treatment of pregnant women, all for selfish gain, an event that is not recorded. Um, they are accused of war crimes, which includes inhumane treatments of pregnant women, all for selfish gain, that they may enlarge their territory. And in the sixth oracle against Moab, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, they are accused of war crimes, in which in pursuit of vengeance, they did not only kill the king of Edom, but they burnt his bones to lime, an event that is not necessarily recorded anywhere else in scripture. Then in slot number seven, the oracle against Judah. Read with me verses four to five of um, chapter two. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke their punishment. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have, kept, have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So you can see that unlike the other nations, Judah is not accused of war crimes. They are not accused of inhumane acts towards others. The Lord condemns the southern kingdom for its apostasy. They rejected the law of the Lord and failed to keep his statutes. An offense the Judeans actually had formerly accused the Israelites in Second Chronicles chapter 13, verse 5 to 12. But having rejected the law of the Lord, Judah followed after lies that led them astray. And the statement is generic, but we know from the history of the people of God, every single time it's said that they followed after the way of their fathers, it had to do with idolatry. After all, anything, or a belief in anything else other than God, it is idolatry. So Judah is accused for breaking 
the covenant they had made with the Lord in Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 to 8. And finally, Amos lands on his target, Israel, verses 6 to 16. So what are the accusations against Israel? Well, let's read together verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the rushes for silver and the needy for a pair of sanders, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who, devoured, who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the ox. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and laid you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazareth drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Then in verse 13, the Lord says, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength. Nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall we, he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout in heart of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in the day, in that day that says, that says the Lord. So you see, Israel is accused of abuse. Um, of the righteous and the poor in verse 6 to 7. Then they're accused of sexual immorality in verse 7b. They're accused of having a low view of God's holiness in verse 8b. They forgot their God in verses 9 to 11. They caused the brother to stumble in verse 12a. And finally, they defied the Lord's messengers, the prophets, in verse 12. So the accusations are stated, and now the case will be built. And this brings us to our second point, the five prophecies, the case against Israel. And in this second major section, we just see a series of prophecies that Amos received. Again, the breaks between the prophecies are clear. The first three prophecies start with the command, hear this word. And the last two shorter prophecies start with an introductory participle, war. So let's read together verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, all people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Then verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So in building the case against Israel, the first prophecy establishes the basis of the Lord's judgment. 
the Lord recounts of the unique relationship he has with Israel and uses that as the basis for his judgment. While the nation of Israel looked at their, nest, at their relationship with God as an assurance of protection from Ham, Amos actually says, well, the opposite is actually true. Based on the relationship that God has with Israel, he will surely judge and he will judge them with a higher standard. And Luke chapter 12 verse 48 actually talks um, about that as well. So the Lord says, judgment is surely coming based on the relationship that you and me have. And I'm going to hold you up to a higher standard. And that brings us to our second prophecy in chapter 4 verse 1 to 13. And in this oracle, Amos addresses the sins of the nation. He talks about the sins of self-indulgence and oppression in verse 1 to 3. And if you can leave with me, verse 1 and 3. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Hermon. So you see, they are accused of sins of self-indulgence and oppression. Not only that, but the Lord also accuses them of sinful worship in verses 4 and 5. And verse 4 says this, Come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free willing offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. So you can see that even their worship was contrary to what they were instructed to do. So in verses 6 to 11, we find a description of all the ways that the Lord has tried to call Israel to turn back to him, but to no avail. Read with me verse 6 of chapter 4. So the Lord says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. In chapter nine, in verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your, vine- your vineyards, your, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. And for that reason, verse 12, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So you see that even in the midst of all this disobedience, the Lord is still calling out the nation of Israel in his loving kindness. Turn to me. 
I did this to you, you did not turn to me. I did this, you did not turn to me. Is there a way they could avoid this? Yes, there is. Because that's what the third prophecy is all about. This oracle in chapter 5, verses 1 to 17, it illustrates to us a whole purpose of Emerson's ministry. Even though Israel had chosen not to return to Yahweh, and their judgment was imminent, the Lord in his mercy still caused Israel to seek him and live. Verse 4 of chapter 5. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. Then verse 14 to 15. Seek good and not evil, that may, you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Then verse 15. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. That's the Lord calling them. Seek me and leave. You can avoid all this by turning back to me. But they won't repent. So verse 16 of chapter 5 falls. Therefore that says the Lord, the God of hosts. In all the squares they shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmers of mourning. And to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards, they shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Then, in the last two prophecies, the Lord declares war against many. Starting off with uh, the fourth prophecy in verse 18 to 17, uh, to, to 27, rather. Thus, those who desire the day of the Lord. Those who desire the day of the Lord. Read with me verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and laid his hand against the wall. And a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness in it. See, in, in desiring the day of the Lord, the Israelites, they were only thinking what was going to happen to their enemies. They did not consider what the day of the Lord meant for them and their unfaithfulness. So the Lord lays out their unfaithfulness in verses 21 to 24. They longed for the day of the Lord, thinking of other nations without considering their own sin, their own unfaithfulness, their own social injustice that had found its roots among them. So the Lord says, I hate, I despise your fists. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offering of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. So we can see that even their worship was corrupted because of the sin that was dwelling among the people of God. And this brings us to our final prophecy. The Lord declares war on those who are falsely secure in Zion in verse 1 of chapter 6. And those who delight, those who delight in pleasure without grieving over sin in verses 4 to 6. And in this oracle, the Lord declares war on both Judah and Israel by mentioning the strongholds of the two kingdoms, Zion and Samaria, respectively, in whom some dwelt and they put their confidence in the strongholds or the fortifications of the cities and not in Yahweh. So Amos says in verse 8 of chapter 6, The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Verse 11, For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house in, into bits. So the case has been built. And now we're going to move on to the sentence, the five visions. And in this third major division of the book, Amos turns from speech to sight. He tells of visions he received from the Lord that confirm the nation's situation. And they all have one message in common. Israel's judgment is at hand. And it is fascinating the way the Lord, the, this last major section of the book, addresses God's sentence on Israel. In five pictures, the Lord reveals to Amos that there is no hope for Israel. In response to the first two, the vision of locusts and the vision of fire, Amos pleads with God. He pleads for mercy for the nation of Israel in verse 2 and verse 5. And the Lord relents. But in the third vision, the vision of the plumb line, judgment is passed. In this third vision, a lot of authors and scholars have said, have tried to compare why Amos did not plead for mercy for the third one when he did to the first two and some of them, they actually say, they actually say they have attributed Amos' silence to the fact that he sees no hope and therefore makes no, inter- therefore makes no intercession for the nation. On the contrary, I believe Amos doesn't say anything because the Lord passes the judgment before he says anything. He just receives a question, what's this or what do you see? A plumb line and the Lord goes straight to the judgment. So... Um, In the first two visions, he saw what was going to happen and he pleaded with the Lord. And in the last one, the Lord just went straight to the judgment. So in verses, in in chapter 7, verse 8 to 9, actually I'll I'll, I'll pick it from verse 7. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. As the Lord said to me, And and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? 
and I said a plumb line then the Lord said behold I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel I will never again pass by them the high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid west and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword so like a wall that is not plumb Israel has not lined up with God's righteous standards and God promises to destroy all the crooked then we have an interlude in verse 10 to 17 Amos encounters Amaziah the priest of Bethel a shrine that was under Jeroboam's protection Amaziah reports to King Jeroboam saying that Amos is conspiring against him because at Bethel that's where Amos was doing his prophecies which was not true by the way however leading this portion of the narrative you just see how corrupt the prophets were these were people who were put in charge to handle the spiritual warfare of the nation yet here is a Messiah showing contempt against Amos, a prophet who was sent by the Lord. The Lord, he, Amaziah, was supposed to be serving. The priesthood that was supposed to hold Israel accountable, according to Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 10, was corrupt. Amaziah asked Amos to go back to Judah and prophesy over there, and not to prophesy at Bethel, for it was the king's sanctuary. Not the Lord's sanctuary, but the king's sanctuary which means everything that was supposed to be prophesied over there was supposed to be in favor of the king so Hamas responds to Amaziah in verse 16 now therefore hear the word of the Lord you say do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac therefore thus says the Lord your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line you yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land Amaziah stands in the way and he gets his own personal judgment and this brings us to our fourth vision the vision of the basket of summer fruit in verses uh, in chapter 8 verses 1 to 14 and read with me verse 1 to 3 of chapter 8 this is what the Lord God showed me behold a basket of summer fruit and he said Amos what do you see and I said a basket of summer fruit then the Lord said to me the end has come upon my people Israel I will never again pass by them the songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day declares the Lord so the Lord uses this vision to show Israel that just like the fruit is fully ripened by the summer sun and ready to be harvested Israel was ready for judgment the summer of the Lord's uh, patience had come to an end and the nation remained unrepentant regardless of the invitations of the Lord to return to him the nation still pursued being unrepentant so the Lord 
says, I will judge the nation. Which brings us to our fifth and last vision, the vision of the Lord. The vision of the Lord in verse in chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. And in this vision, Amos saw the Lord standing by the order commanding the, the temple to be demolished and caused to fall upon the worshippers. The Lord declares that none will be able to hide from his hand of judgment. And in verse 2, um, in, in, in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 9, and if you can read with me, the Lord says, if they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven from there, I'll bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Yet, in the midst of all these pronouncements of judgment, there is a glimmer of hope in the last five verses, which brings us to our last point, the epilogue, the ultimate perspective of Israel, the ultimate prospect of Israel, verses 11 to 15 of chapter 9. Read with me. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that I that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this behold the days are coming declares the Lord when the plowman shall overtake the ripper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall bring they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them says the Lord your God and this balances out the picture of God as a roaring devouring lion we saw in verse 2 of chapter 1 and we see his mercy and quickly uh, we learn here uh, in the restoration of his people that the Lord will, will restore Israel here the eternal promises of the Davidic kingdom are recorded in verse 11 and with that a stress on the, of the covenantal inclusion of the remnant from all the nations who will be called by the Lord's name. And it is interesting, and this happens with most of the prophets, that when the Lord is restoring Israel, along comes the nations, fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Not only that, but we also learn that the Lord will restore the land. Their productivity will be so great, so much so, that there will be an overlap. The reapers will not complete their harvesting before it is time to plow and sow again. Israel, including the people from the nations, those who will be called, um, those who will call by Yahweh's, uh, those who will be called by Yahweh's name, will again inhabit the land and enjoy its productivity, and never again to be uprooted. 
So if I was to give you a synopsis of the book of Amos, it, it, it would go like this. Israel should prepare to meet their God, recognizing that in his impartial justice, he will surely punish sin. And their only hope of restoration lies in their repentance and returning to Yahweh, their God. So what are some of the prominent theological themes in the book? Well, for sure, God's sovereignty over all nations. Going through the oracles and reading all the charges against the nations, we can't help but marvel at God's authority over all nations. I mean, we may think that he would only hold Israel accountable because they were his people. He had a covenant with them. But the narrative of Amos shows us that God is the ultimate authority. He is the universal judge, and in his righteousness, he will judge people of all nations. Not only is God a universal judge, but as a creator, he, is, he actually orchestrates events in the whole world to accomplish his own purposes. Isaiah 45, verse 1, verse, verses 7 to 8, he declares, The Lord declares, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them, to, cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So you see, the world may seem to be going out of control right now. You speak of pandemics, you speak of wars, you speak of natural disasters, you name it. I mean, like right now, it's... You have COVID, then you have people on the West Coast who are struggling with wildfires and on the East Coast people who are struggling with floods. Such a weird combination. But the Lord orchestrates all these events. And it's not that God is trying to make our lives miserable by imposing his sovereign will on our lives right now. One author actually commenting on Isaiah's passage there, a passage I just read, said, far from a problem to cope with, God's sovereignty over all things is the only hope for the flowering of salvation and righteousness in this world. Not only God's sovereignty, but we also see God's impartiality in his justice. From Amos' narrative, we see God who holds every nation accountable. And in his righteousness and in his righteousness and his righteous justice, he judges every nation accordingly. Paul expands on this in the letter to Roman, to the Romans in chapter two, verse twelve. For all have sinned, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And this is a good reminder that God's moral standards are not only for Jews or for Christians. They are for all people. And in due time, he is going to judge the whole world. Not only do we see God's sovereignty, his impartiality and his justice, but we also see God's promise to preserve a remnant. Even though there is no hope for Israel as a whole, God promises that he will preserve for himself a remnant. The doctrine of remnant is based on God's promise to preserve the faithful of Israel for the sake of the covenant established with the nation's forefathers. In Leviticus, according to Leviticus chapter 26, verse 44 to 45, and living on this side of the cross with pretty much sin, 
how the Lord has preserved the remnant of Israel. And now through Christ, we believers have been grafted into this promise and we are being preserved as well until we see him in glory. So what are some of the impacts for today? Well, I would invite you to consider God's preeminence overall. Consider God's preeminence overall. Throughout the narrative of scripture, we see a God who is at work in all circumstances, both in prosperity and in hardship. When the nation of Israel flourished, it was God. When the nation of Israel faced a crisis, it was God. He used some of the most godless leaders and godless nations to accomplish his wealth. In Isaiah chapter 10 verse 5, actually, God calls Assyria the road of his anger. He also used the Chaldeans of Babylon to punish Judah. And in due time, the same God delivered his people and judged the nations he used as his judgment. How do events around us, or how do these events that we're seeing in scripture, how do they inform our view of God's sovereignty and how we react to circumstances that are going on around us? Is our hope anchored in a temporal human institution, in, in, in a temporal human institution or a set of policies? Or our hope is now immutable, sovereign God who ordains every event, no matter how big or small, before the foundations of the world and he holds everything together. Not only that, but I will also invite you to consider the seriousness of sin. Just seeing how the Lord dealt with the nation of Israel, you should see that the Lord is really serious and doesn't like sin at all. Do we take seriously the offensive nature of sin in our own lives? John Owen, writing on sin, he says, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make their business all the days to modify the indwelling power of sin when convicted of sin. Are we quick to return to the Lord with a contrite heart in repentance? If we don't do so, I would invite you to consider the importance of repentance. Israel was called to repentance over and over again. Return to Yahweh, seek the Lord and live. Cause that went unheeded. And in the end, the Lord sent the whole nation into captivity. Thomas Watson wrote, Either sin must drown in the tears of repentance or the soul must burn in hell. Are we repentant of our sins? And lastly, I would invite you to consider God's immense love for his people. Regardless of Israel's rebellion, the Lord will still end up calling them my people and promises to reestablish them. Not only the nation of Israel, but every other nation that will be called by Yahweh's name, you and me included. As we go through the narrative of scripture, or even just from experience in our own lives, do we ever pause and consider the Lord's undying and ending commitment to us, his immeasurable love for us and his faithfulness even when we are unfaithful? How are the truths of scripture? How are the truths of Ephesians, the book we are going through right now, impacting your own life and informing your view of a holy God? May we not be like Israel, stuck in unrepentance, but we quickly turn to the Lord.